The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Star Wars 7 by 7 episode 1233 today. A conversation with Patrick Johnson, author of the new book, The Physics of Star Wars. Punch it, Chewie. I'm Taylor Gray from Star Wars Rebels, and you're listening to Star Wars 7x7, the only daily Star Wars podcast. Hey, Rebel Rouser. Welcome to Star Wars 7x7. I'm your host, Alan Voivod, and here are the bona fides of my guest on this episode, Mr. Patrick Johnson. Dr. Patrick Johnson is what it should be. He is an assistant teaching professor at Georgetown University. He previously taught at Marquette University and William Jewell College. He received his Ph.D. in physics from Washington University in St. Louis. The bio I have here says he gained his passion for Star Wars from his father, Eric, and has continued that throughout his life, watching the entire series in a marathon before the premieres of both Episode 1 and Episode 7. When not teaching physics or watching Star Wars, Patrick spends time doing improv comedy with a local DC group, and he certainly knew how to roll with the stuff I threw at him in this podcast. The book itself is really awesome, and it talks about... All sorts of different topics in the Star Wars universe and applies the rules of real world physics to them as best as they can be applied as we know them now. And as Patrick will explain, if they can't be applied, if it's not something that's covered right now, then he has his own very interesting way of addressing those particular topics. And in the conversation you're about to hear, I asked him to elaborate on three particular topics that I thought would be of particular interest to you, and those include lightsabers, how close we are to actually building them, and Patrick will actually go into the possibilities of how we could actually build them and what that means for our science right now. We'll also talk about sound in space because <laughs> that's always a fun one to talk about. And he took a very novel approach to exploring the possibility of this being something that could actually happen. And also the Kessel Run. We talked about that as well and whether Han Solo's boast of doing it in less than 12 parsecs was actually a load of bunk that he was feeding to Luke and to Ben, or if there was some actual serious science behind what he was saying. And before I kick it over to that conversation, I just want to say that the fine folks at Adams Media that published the book, they're an imprint of Simon & Schuster, they have offered a free copy of the book to our listeners, and I'm going to have that promotion set up by Sunday. So details soon to come, but just so you know, you're going to have a chance to win a copy of this book, which I think is pretty cool of them to do. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Patrick Johnson, PhD professor in physics and author of The Physics of Star Wars. Enjoy. Patrick Johnson, thank you so much for joining me on Star Wars 7x7. Thank you, Alan. I'm so excited to be here. So I have a copy of The Physics of Star Wars, which I'm enjoying the heck out of so far. And I have to ask you, so you are a physics professor, and the, the material 
in the book uh, says that you are a lifelong fan of Star Wars. And what I'd like to start off by asking you is, where's sort of the, the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup moment? Like, where did the chocolate and the peanut butter connect where you said, you know, I've got to put these two things together and ultimately create a book out of it? So uh, this, this comes from a kind of uh, a general, uh, obviously I have a passion for physics and Star Wars and kind of, uh, as you say, the Reese's Cup moment for me would have been when I, I really wanted to find a way to do kind of general science outreach uh, in a way that is exciting for the general populace because I think science is a very important thing and being a physicist in this world, when you meet new people and they ask, what do you do? And you say, well, I say, I teach, and then they say, what? And I say, physics. The response is always something along the lines of, oh, I hate physics, or physics is so hard, et cetera. But I think physics is super exciting and really cool, and can we can have very interesting conversations about physics. And my experience with teaching, I have found that in my introductory physics classes that I teach, that students are not nearly as excited as I am about a block sliding down a ramp or <laughs> a, a ball like rolling up a hill or something like that. But if I phrase a problem of, oh, well, what's the tension in the cable as Luke uh, attaches to the bottom of an ATAT as he uh, goes up to throw a grenade into the bottom of it? Like all of a sudden students are like, wait a second, that's a thing I like. I, 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 and they perk up in class. And so this book is kind of a combination of uh, my desire to kind of make uh, physics into something that everybody can at least say like, you know what, this is an interesting conversation. Maybe I don't want to study physics for the rest of my life. And I'm okay with that. That's, that's fine. Uh, but I think physics is something that is very interesting to have conversations about. And I think that Star Wars does a wonderful job of motivating very interesting conversations. Uh, and that, that is the goal of this book is to kind of have conversations about very interesting things from the Star Wars universe, but then also tie it to, well, how possible is this? And how realistic are these things? And I try to be very generous uh, when it comes to saying whether something is possible or not. Uh, but really, uh, the, our universe is a wonderful and kind of magical place at times, it uh, feels like when you're learning uh, science. And to see uh, how those real things in our universe could be used to explain what happens in Star Wars, I think is very fascinating. I do too. And I'm going to talk to you about a few of the things that you pursue in the book for sure. But as you're talking about this, you put me in mind of A Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking and yeah. how his idea for doing the book was basically to bring the topics of physics to a general population. And it seems like you're essentially walking in his footsteps, which <laughs> <laughs> uh, that that is uh, a a comparison that I do not feel like I uh, have earned. Uh, like <laughs> I, I, I I am very honored by that comparison, um, but like people like Stephen Hawking and Richard Feynman and uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson and Bill Nye, like they are they are giants in my eyes, uh, and they have done wonders for being able to talk about science and. Uh, I care more about the physics part of this, and so that's why my list of people includes those humans. Um, but there are wonderful advocates for science, uh, and uh, I believe it's Richard Feynman, and I'm sorry I don't know the direct quote, uh, but he said that you don't really understand an, a topic in physics unless you can talk to somebody who doesn't have a physics background. Um, 
about it so that they understand it. Because if all you can quote is, there's this equation that I saw in a book once, that's not a true understanding of it. And to be able to talk about things so that even somebody without a science background can understand, uh, I think, uh, shows a, a good understanding. And I hope uh, that I have succeeded in that in writing this book, that uh, I, I genuinely hope that a high school student or somebody who doesn't have a science background can pick up this book and read it and understand what I'm talking about and appreciate the things I'm talking about, uh, even if they still want to continue being a doctor or uh, architect or uh, uh, English professor or whatever other uh, job that they want, that they can still enjoy reading this book. And um, you actually have it just, you know, as far as I'm concerned, perfectly paraphrased as far as Feynman's idea mm -hmm. about being able to distill it to teach to a freshman audience is what I yeah. recall it. Um, I'm a big Feynman fan, as it turns out, and I read Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman in college, uh -huh. and I wish Absolutely. I could remember the uh, the name of the follow-up. I think the word obvious was in the title, but um, and I think I even have the Feynman lectures on CD, those specific lectures, um, and yeah. unfortunately... I can't quite get through it. I took <laughs> physics for poets in college, as they called uh -huh. it, and yeah. barely managed to see. But nobody was talking about Star Wars yeah. in that particular thing. So I think <laughs> I think <laughs> you are absolutely on the right track in making it a lot more accessible to an audience by equating it to something, if not exactly real world, then yeah. certainly real enough. Yeah, and it's something that uh, the the thing about teaching physics is you want to tie it to something that people have experience with, and so we often talk about throwing a ball, et cetera, because that's something almost everybody has done. But even if Star Wars is indeed a fictional universe, and admittedly none of the laws of our universe have to apply in the Star Wars universe, like they a, a lot of people have experience seeing the movies of Star Wars, and they have seen these scenes take place. And so they have experience with this, even if it's not a firsthand experience of actually holding a lightsaber or using the force themselves. Exactly. So um, since you've mentioned lightsabers, why don't mm -hmm. we jump into that as one of the uh, the topics that you yeah. pursue in the book? Um, mm -hmm. As far as lightsabers go, we might be closer to actually having real lightsabers than we necessarily think we are. At least that's the impression I get from the book. Yeah. Uh, there are a number of research groups that uh, are looking into studying how to contain plasmas uh, and also uh, looking into creating uh, light molecules. And uh, in the films and uh, in, in the Star Wars universe, depending on what, which source you go to, it is either literally a beam of light or a contained plasma. And the physics of each of those would be very different. And I try to, in the book, discuss... Uh, if it's a, a beam of plasma, how this would need to work versus if it's a, a beam of light, how it would need to work. And I try to address a few of the engineering challenges associated with each of those. Um, containing a plasma is a lot easier. Uh, we as physicists ha can do that in research labs at, on universities. Uh, the biggest example uh, would be uh, the Large Hadron Collider uh, in Europe, uh, but any particle accelerator uh, can contain a plasma. All you need to do that is a strong enough magnetic field to get it to go around in a circle. Now, key word there, circle. That's <laughs> not quite a beam. <laughs> no. So uh, th there are uh, like engineering challenges of, well, can you squash that circle down it so that it looks like a beam? Uh, 
et cetera, associated with that. And uh, I, I am not an engineer, and so I do not have all the solutions to these things, and nor do I discuss all of the challenges associated with this in the book. And I, I feel that science is very much a communication, uh, a, a dialogue that goes on between people. And so if people read the book and think to themselves, well, why didn't he consider this or that? Please let me know what I don't consider or, oh, you use this assumption and I don't think you should. Please let me know because I think there's still an interesting conversation that can be had about taking away one of my assumptions or considering a new assumption. Um, and then uh, looking at that uh, uh, for a beam of plasma is interesting, but then containing a beam of light can also be equally challenging uh, in that you would need some kind of mirror to allow the light to bounce back and forth uh, uh, to stay in that uh, beam. But then you don't also, uh, then a beam of light uh, may not be able to cauterize wounds like a lightsaber is shown uh, to do uh, or uh, melt through metal uh, or it would need to be a super powerful laser that if it could melt through a door would probably also melt through the reflective mirror on the other side of the lightsaber. Mm. Um, and so uh, like uh, it, as far as a physicist looking at this is concerned, I would have to say it's much more likely that it is a contained beam of plasma. Um, and uh, I am, I'm aware of the idea that it is being held in through channeling the force. Uh, but as a physicist, I am trying to come up with a way to explain how this could be possible uh, without relying on magical brain powers that don't <laughs> that haven't been proven to exist in our universe, and so uh, how are, how could we as physicists try to contain this? And I've seen uh, a video. Uh, I'm sorry, I forget the group who put it together, but uh, they uh, I believe are officially uh, connected with Star Wars, where they created a thermite reaction where they had a large uh, metal rod, which they essentially uh, are kind of just setting on fire to create uh, a plasma which allows them to melt through metal because the reaction is so hot and using that to uh, say we're close to a lightsaber in that respect uh, but like my discussion about uh, lightsabers there are engineering challenges with that in that that is a metal rod which is slowly burning away which you'd have to replace the rod every time you used it uh, you can't hold it on your belt and then uh, turn it on with the press of a button. There's quite a, uh, not a super complicated chemical reaction, but there's a chemical reaction you have to initiate to make that happen. And so uh, we are working our way there. Uh, we are not quite to lightsabers yet. Uh, but uh, one of the things that I love about science fiction is that if you talk to many scientists, they talk about how they grew up reading or watching science fiction things and how that helps get them interested in studying science. And there are people who are studying to create lightsabers because this was a thing that they saw and loved uh, growing up uh, in Star Wars. Uh, and so the science fiction, although it's currently fiction, inspires the next generation of scientists to try to make that fiction a reality. And I love that give and take between science fiction and uh, scientists doing actual science. It is awesome. And you point out in the book, too, that 
in terms of the plasma situation that right now they need like something room size to be able to contain yeah. <laughs> plasma. But you point out very helpfully that it was only about 60 years ago that they needed a whole room for a computer, which now we're carrying around in a very small, you know, piece of equipment yes. for that same kind of computing power. So, you know, very it's true. definitely not something to rule out as a possibility. Well, maybe not in our own lifetimes, perhaps, depending on <laughs> yeah, on but, how things go cybernetically. But <laughs> yeah, but honestly, uh, 60 years ago, somebody would have said exactly the same thing about computers. And so you never know when that giant advancement would happen. And uh, I uh, talk in the book about the idea of if high temperature superconductors become a thing that uh, we have and can use, that could shrink down our plasma containing uh, devices significantly because one of the largest pieces are superconducting magnets, which currently require liquid helium to get them down to around four Kelvin, which is very close to absolute zero. And gallons of liquid helium is a large thing that will never be able to fit into our pocket. Uh, <laughs> but with a high temperature superconductor that doesn't need to be around four Kelvin, we could potentially keep that in our pocket and it would be able to uh, maintain that magnetic field to contain a plasma beam in something that's a pocket-sized device. And uh, I don't remember specific numbers on the current record, but I believe it's up to a few hundred Kelvin, I believe high 180s to like low 200 Kelvin, which is still not quite to room temperature, but is is creeping up there. And if we could get there, uh, that would be a huge revolution in uh, science, not just for the purposes of making lightsabers, but for all kinds <laughs> of uh, engineering challenges across the board. Awesome. See, we're already learning stuff beyond the realm of Star Wars as a yeah. result of this discussion. Very yeah. cool. Yeah. And, and, uh, and somebody who wants to make a lightsaber could invent something that ends up completely changing telecommunications or something else like that uh, there, the history of science is littered with stories of people who accidentally discover a thing or discover one thing only to discover that it actually helps out a completely different field. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of the innovators and in fields are people who look at a different field and say, they're doing this thing for that situation. That's very similar to what I'm doing. How about I steal their ideas and apply it to my thing? And it completely revolutionizes the way a thing is done. Which is how penicillin, I think, came about. Am I... Yeah. Uh, so uh, I'm not a medical historian, but it is my understanding that it was uh, left uh, – I'm drawing a blank on the name of the person, but he left a Petri dish with his bacteria growing next to an open window and some mold spores blew in and landed on the Petri dish. And the mold just killed off all the bacteria and thus birthed penicillin. And uh, it, it started with just a simple uh, kind of fluke of history and accident. But uh, – uh, the list of accidental discoveries is very, very long. Uh, Post-it notes uh, was, uh, I believe, somebody trying to develop a, a glue that just wasn't very strong. And then we got post-it notes. And uh, <laughs> I believe Silly Putty was trying to come up with a new a form of synthetic rubber. Uh, I, I'm nervous going off of memory rather than double-checking all my facts. Uh, but uh, I, I believe these are stories of accidental discoveries uh, that I hope I get right. <laughs> well, I'll stop you there. We'll, yeah. We won't go any yeah. further just to make sure that uh, I don't push you into the, uh, the realm of supposition yeah. <laughs> any more than necessary. Um, all right. Let me ask you about another Star Wars topic that's a very hotly 
debated item. Actually, I guess I wouldn't necessarily say so hotly debated. It's just one that everybody has said, okay, this is just one that we are ultimately suspending our disbelief about because it's just cool. And that is the notion of sound in space. And uh-huh. you choose to pursue this in a, a very interesting way, I thought, which was to look at the scene from Attack of the Clones where Jango Fett launches these seismic charges at mm-hmm. Obi-Wan Kenobi's starfighter. Yes. Uh, and uh, I just uh, that, I think, is very interesting because... I think the idea of a seismic explosion is very interesting. And in, in uh, real terms, that is exactly what a concussion grenade is in our uh, real universe, is that it creates a shock wave, uh, which is uh, just a very large compression of air moving away from it. And a large compression of air looked at a different way is just a very, very loud sound. Um, and so uh, the the seismic charge uh, that uh, is released in Attack of the Clones, uh, one occurs in uh, the Geonosis uh, asteroid field uh, or rings uh, surrounding uh, Geonosis. So I tried to look at, could this be a way to justify having sound in space? Like, can I just find a way to make this work? And uh, it turns out the density of uh, the rocks just isn't large enough to allow the propagation of sound. And then I try to say, well, maybe the atmosphere from the planet reaches up high enough. And sadly, there would be too many other consequences, like all the, uh, all the asteroids uh, in the rings uh, would just be burning up in the atmosphere uh, if the atmosphere was dense enough to support sound. Um, but uh, there are some other things about it that I think are really interesting uh, beyond, uh, like, having to unfortunately say sound probably isn't going to be able to survive in this certain situation of, uh, I think the shape that it creates is exceptionally interesting. And it's a shape that shows up uh, in physics and chemistry and uh, plenty of other places that it, it's kind of like a dumbbell shape that collapses upon itself and then pancakes out. And anybody who studies the electron orbitals uh, in uh, atoms will recognize a shape that looks just like that. And, uh, we physicists would call it a spherical harmonic, but, uh, the name isn't what's important. Uh, that shape, uh, shows up in any situation where we have a certain type of angular momentum. And I don't, uh, want your listeners to kind of start shutting off their brain when I'm using <laughs> these technical terms. But like, uh, what's really interesting about that is if you want to hit a target, you want that pancake to go out and hit your direct target. And now, Maybe he's just trying to blow up all the uh, rocks in the area to create enough debris to cause damage to the ship, and that's his goal. But I would expect that he's actually hoping that that will hit the ship. And to control which way that goes is very important for targeting uh, with that bomb. And so how do you rotate a thing around in space to make sure that it, when it uh, detonates, hits your target? That is a very complicated engineering problem, and... NASA has solved that uh, long ago by using Uh gyroscopes inside of satellites uh, because, for instance, when it comes to uh, positioning something like the Hubble telescope, which has taken some of the most wonderful images uh, far away, uh, first thought might be, well, I just can put little rockets on it to like kind of shoot off a little rocket to redirect it. Uh, But the main problems with rockets include that rockets require fuel, and so once you're out of fuel, you're done. Um, and two, 
if you want your telescope to be taking pictures, shooting a bunch of debris out right around your camera isn't that great because it's not going to go anywhere. It's just going to float directly in front of your camera and distort all your pictures uh, in the future. Right. And so uh, like rockets aren't a great solution to that. And so uh, we actually use uh, gyroscopes, which uh, uh, the idea behind a gyroscope is it's like a top. So if you think of your favorite toy top where you spin it and then it spins around and then as it starts to fall, it begins to precess around, which is the wobble that it gets. And it turns out with gyroscopes for something in space, if you cause them to go faster or slower just using a normal everyday electric motor, you can reposition your satellite thanks to uh, what we call conservation of angular momentum of something that's just floating in space. If you cause it to spin one way, something else has to be spinning the other way to conserve angular momentum. And so we can control the direction that a satellite is pointing just by spinning up and slowing down these giant tops inside of the satellite. And there's an excellent video from Smarter Every Day uh, where he actually interviews NASA scientists who do this um, just to put a plug in for a YouTube educator who does wonderful work. Uh, but uh, he talks about how we use this exact technique to position our satellites. And uh, that is a very possible way to control which way these seismic charges go. Uh, because you like when you have a weapon and you're shooting it at your uh, enemy, whether that person be a good person or a bad person depends on which side of that fight you're on. But like, <laughs> you, want your, you want your weapon to hit your target. That's the goal of it. And so to be able to control which way that seismic charge detonates without uh, any kind of external forces, because you don't want to be standing there to position it the right way when it goes off. No. Uh, <laughs> so uh, having some kind of internal mechanism to do that is very important. And I think gyroscopes would be a perfect way to control that seismic charge. Gyroscopes along with some sort of internal targeting mechanism to actually yeah. lock on to the to the intended target, presumably. Exactly, yeah. Some, some form of targeting mechanism to say, my target is over there, spin up this gyroscope or uh, spin it down to cause it to reorient so that uh, it targets your uh, intended target. Got it. So, unfortunately, as far as sound in space in Star Wars goes, we are still all actively suspending our disbelief yes. on that one, it turns out. And I, and I forgive uh, the movie makers for that because if the entirety of all of the space scenes were completely silent, it would just not be the same movie-going experience. And so as a person who wants to enjoy a movie, I forgive the existence of sound in space uh, when I'm watching a movie, even if it's not scientifically accurate. Uh, <laughs> I, I feel like it's a necessary evil. This episode is brought to you by Nissan and their Master the Drive sweepstakes going on now through November 27th. You can enter for the chance to win your own personalized ride inspired by Star Wars The Last Jedi. Plus, you and three friends could get tickets to the opening night screening of The Last Jedi at the world-famous El Capitan Theater in Los Angeles and, and a limited edition Executioner Trooper collectible helmet. All you have to do to enter is go to NissanUSA.com slash Star Wars to customize a Star Wars-inspired Nissan vehicle. Again, that's NissanUSA.com slash Star Wars to enter. And last but not least, here are the legal details. Deep breath. Here we go. 
No purchase necessary. Contest ends November 27, 2017. You must be 18 years or older to enter. It's for residents of the 50 U.S. states and Washington, D.C. only. Entries, rules, and odds are at NissanUSA.com slash Star Wars, and it's void where prohibited. All right. I'm going to ask you about one more topic here, and this uh-huh. is probably, I would say, the most famous one of all <laughs> in terms of uh, Star Wars conundrums. It's the statement that Han Solo makes about making the Kessel run in less than 12 parsecs. And yeah. I've heard this explained away as, uh, well, first of all, of course, we need to establish that a parsec is a unit of distance, not of time, and that there's one explanation suggesting that Han is saying it this way because he thinks that Obi-Wan and Luke are just rubes and don't know anything, and he's kind of testing them to see whether they actually pick up on it or call him on the fact that, oh, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. But you actually have an explanation for why this makes utter and complete sense using a parsec as it's intended to be used as yes. a unit of distance. Actually, you have a number of them, but... Yeah. Even if you just want to share one of them, that would be uh-huh. awesome. Yeah. So uh, obviously it could just be bravado, but uh, the physicist to me wants to try to justify this. And uh, one, uh, the analogy that I use in the book is the idea of an ant trying to walk uh, a certain distance uh, and ha- putting different obstacles in the way of the ant. And so, for instance, one uh, uh, possible obstacle is a natural predator of an ant called an ant lion, which is very much like a sarlacc in that uh, the ant lion just kind of digs a hole so that if an ant walks too close, it will fall into the open mouth of the ant lion and be consumed. And uh, so although presumably uh, when doing the Kessel Run, you don't have to dodge a sarlacc or two, uh, there are other obstacles that could be in the way which uh, could give justification to what Han Solo says. And Uh, That obstacle could be a black hole, for instance, and uh, that black hole distorts space and time around it. And so the conservative thing to do would be to just go very far around the black hole, never try to get close to it, never worry about uh, ever risking crossing the event horizon and falling into it. Uh, But somebody more daring like a Han Solo, uh, for instance, could say, you know what, I don't need to be safe. I'm going to go extra close to that black hole and just kind of skim right along the event horizon. And so saying that he does the Kessel Run by traveling a much shorter distance could be an indication that he is actually just going extra close to a black hole, for instance. Uh, There are are other possible explanations uh, that uh, could give rise to this. But I would also like to feature uh, a different uh, way of thinking about this in that we as humans do this day in and day out in our daily lives, uh, kind of in reverse though. When we're talking to uh, somebody about how far away is something, we often cite how long it will take you to get there. Because Mm -hmm. if you have an agreement on how fast you're traveling, distance and time tell you the same thing. So if I know you're going to be driving down the highway at 65 miles per hour, I can tell you that thing is an hour away and you will know that that means 65 miles away. Similarly, right. if uh, I, I want to say, oh yeah, the store is just uh, 10 uh, minutes walking away. And if we have that agreed upon speed that you're traveling, distance and time are interchangeable. And we as physicists do this all the time in uh, 
advanced physics courses, there's an entire set of units that we call natural units, where the speed of light is just one, just the number one, no units or anything, because light travels one light second every second, or in a more common parlance, one light year every year. That's how fast light travels. And uh, then distance is measured in seconds, time is measured in seconds, and it's all the same. Uh, and we could equivalently do that where distance is measured in meters and time is measured in meters uh, in such a way where maybe Han Solo is just a very advanced physicist who happens to uh, think in terms of distances being translated into times and times being translated into distances. Uh, that is also another possibility, but I've never seen his credentials to prove that he's an advanced physicist. <laughs> well, I think we're going to get a look at some of his credentials potentially in the Han Solo movie coming out next year. And uh, so, I'm excited. <laughs> yeah. So my question for you in that would be, do you think that we're going to see the Kessel Run depicted in the Han Solo movie? Just your opinion. Uh, my opinion, I or think that even. is a dangerous proposition for them to do because uh, I thought, I honestly thought before seeing Force Awakens that they just never make re a reference to it again. And I thought they handled it nicely by kind of turning it into a joke uh, in The Force Awakens. But I think to actually depict it, to give a definitive one way or another, I think would be a thing that's going to leave people unhappy no matter how well you handle it. And so even if you come up with a perfectly justifiable way, even if it's just bravado, uh, I just think it's going to leave people unsatisfied no matter what you do with it. Uh, that's just my opinion. I think there are uh, plenty of ways that you can justify what he said in a very scientifically accurate way uh, that fits into the character of Han Solo. Uh, but I also think to depict it on screen would be a, a dangerous choice. Uh, but uh, maybe it would be a very Han Solo f uh, type of choice to say, you know what, I'm just going to follow my gut and go with it. And uh, who cares what other people say about it? Uh, <laughs> So that might be very appropriate for the Han Solo movie. But if I were the one in charge, I would not I would not go there. I like that answer a lot. And I find it fascinating, especially in light of facts like how George Lucas will. He said that he never wanted to define anything about Yoda's species or, or mm -hmm. backstory really or anything. And yeah. that he ultimately wanted it to stay a complete mystery. And mm -hmm. I assume that somewhere in the contractual language of the sale from uh, you know, to Lucas from Lucasfilm to Disney, or yeah. you know, that that must be <laughs> one of the uh, the clauses in there that that will never be revealed. But that's the only thing I had ever heard specifically mm -hmm. that's going to be ultimately mysterious. But yeah. there ought to be more things that should be mysterious. And I, if there's any candidate for something like that, I think the Kessel Run is certainly one of the top ones for it. Uh, I, I think that would be a good thing for them to just leave as a mystery as to what was going on and uh, allow us as fans to debate what it is. And uh, even though I did write this book to talk about Star Wars in the lens of being a physicist and try to explain how some of these things are possible, I do not want to present myself as a definitive, uh, like saying that this is definitely the way it is or say that this is how uh, George Lucas was thinking or even how he should have been thinking. I, I'm not trying to pass myself off as 
the definitive authority on any of these things. I just think it's good to have these kinds of conversations about these things and say, how could this be justified? And at the end of the day, if uh, in universe it's justified with the force is a magic brain power, uh, don't ask anything else. That's fine by me. Like, <laughs> and, and I'm happy to uh, have that be the answer or for it to just be like, we're just never going to give you that answer. That's fine. And if somebody reads my book and thinks to themselves, well, I think I have a better answer than uh, silly old Patrick Johnson. That's great. Like I, I want you to be thinking of your own things because that is, that is what science is at the end of the day is looking at the people who went before you and say, nah, I don't buy that. I want to do it my own way. And if we never question Newton, then we, Einstein would have never uh, found relativity, uh, discovered relativity. And uh, we wouldn't have had GPS or so many other advancements uh, that come from uh, the discovery of relativity. Or uh, similarly, uh, with uh, the discussion of how light works, Newton thought they were particles. Then uh, Thomas Young and Huygen were like, it's definitely waves. And Young definitively proved that light behaved like a wave. And everybody was like, yes, this is definitely the case. And then Einstein described the photoelectric effect, which says with definitive proof that light is a particle. But we now have two experiments which say definitively light is a wave and light is a particle, which are mutually exclusive things, which the thing about that is we as scientists don't have an answer to that. Uh, we call it wave particle duality. And we have come up with ways to explain how this could be a thing. Oh, well, right now it's behaving like a particle. Right now it's behaving like a wave. But in reality, it's something else. Maybe it, some people like to call it a wavicle or a wave packet or a quanton or have come up with all these names. But we're coming up with these explanations. And questioning, uh, questioning what is being presented as this is definitive science is important. That being said there are things that we have pretty definitive proof that it is definitely the case. Uh, like things like climate change uh, is like there's overwhelming evidence uh, indicating that humans uh, have contributed to climate change uh, and that uh, the climate is indeed changing. Um, it's healthy to say, well, how do we know that? How do we know that this is the case? And if you can find experiments that definitively prove something even if it's just taught as canonically true, if you can find an experiment that shows that that's not true, that's an important thing to do. And uh, so uh, I guess I'm not saying that you should ignore science. That's not at all what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. uh, but like that, if you uh, like just because something is said to be true, you should be able to go out and do it yourself. That's the, that's the thing about science is it should be reproducible. And no matter what, if we say today that chocolate helps cure cancer, uh, it should be able to be reproduced in any lab anywhere. And if seven more research groups do an experiment and say, I see no correlation between chocolate consumption and cancer rates, then science has advanced. And we constantly are building upon ourselves uh, in ways uh, that are, one, exceptionally important, and two, it's always a conversation that's going on. Uh, and uh, I personally do not think we will ever have a theory of everything. And honestly, I think that would be a somewhat boring universe to live in if we did, because everything would be explainable and know knowable immediately. And so there wouldn't be anything 
uh, that would catch you by surprise. Uh, and I think science will continue exploring more and more uh, things that we don't currently understand and finding explanations for them, but there will be always more to understand. And um, more to talk about, certainly, too. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And so for those physicists, armchair or otherwise, that would mm -hmm. like to continue the conversation with you, uh, yes. where might they best connect with you? So uh, I, I have an email address uh, that is uh, my Georgetown email address, uh, pgj7 at georgetown.edu. Uh, it's uh, the best place to get a hold of me. Uh, this is embarrassing that I don't currently have a website created. Uh, it is in the works, and I hope to have a website uh, that will be my personal things uh, associated with my professional career as a professor, but then also have a section about the book um, that is in development uh, right now. Uh, but I'm still very new in my professorial career, and this is my first book, so I'm very new in my uh, authorial career, if that is indeed a word. Uh, I think so. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. Uh, so I, I am developing that, uh, which hopefully will uh, be able to be a place where you can continue to have this conversation and just send me an email. Uh, I probably won't be able to get back to you in a day, but, uh, I, I would love to have more conversations with people about these things. And even if it's just, you want to tell me about all the things that I got wrong, <laughs> uh, I, I will listen to everything you have to say and, uh, either fix it for the next printing or talk about, uh, how, what you're suggesting is an interesting conversation in its own right, uh, beyond what I've talked about in the book, because at the end of the day, this book is only about 250 pages. There's only so much I can put in there. And there are so many more interesting conversations to have beyond the scope of this book. And that is probably the most generous offer any author has provided the actual physical email address, their personal email address, and offered to have conversations about the topic directly. So that is a very yeah. wonderful and generous thing for you well, to do. Uh, I will say uh, if this takes off and I become a huge superstar, that offer may eventually fall off the table. But <laughs> as for right now, I'm, I'm just a guy who wrote a book. Uh, and so uh, I, and I don't have a, a large Twitter presence or uh, other forms of social media uh, presence. So uh, I imagine many other people who are much more important than me use that as their way of communicating with fans. Um, but as for right now, uh, I, I do have a Twitter account. It's just not very interesting because I don't use it. <laughs> so, <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, but uh, just to say that uh, my, my full name is uh, Patrick Greenleaf Hart Johnson. And so the P, G, and J come from the Patrick Greenleaf Johnson part of it. Uh, so PGJ, and I guess I'm the seventh person at Georgetown to ever have those uh, initials. So, yeah. Must be a, a rather storied university to have <laughs> that combination <laughs> happen so many times yeah. in its career. Yeah. Well, congratulations on your uh, budding professorial career in addition to your budding authorial career. Yeah. The Physics of Star Wars is available in bookstores and in your favorite online retailers. Do check it out. Thank you so much, Patrick, for joining me for Star Wars 7x7. This has been an awesome conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Alan. I've really enjoyed this conversation, too. And uh, honestly, I, I 
uh, enjoy having conversations like this in general, which is why I shared my email address in, in case people want to have more conversations with me uh, to go in depth beyond what I talk about in the book. And uh, like I said, uh, in the introduction of the book and in this interview, uh, like the thing about science is you should be able to go home and recreate everything that I did and be able, if I ever have any numbers in there, you should be able to figure them out uh, on your own and check my work. And if you go home and pull out your physics book and check my numbers and are like, ooh, I got something completely different, let me know because I, I might have messed something up. That is, again, very awesome and generous of you to offer it too. So to our mm -hmm. listeners, grab the book and break out your physics books. And if you don't have a <laughs> physics book, go to your local library and grab one or talk to your uh, favorite high school student you know and get one and, uh, and get your calculator and your pencils cracking. All right. Well, I, I love uh, encouraging people to think more about physics. So uh, whatever can make that happen makes me happy. Thank you again, Patrick. Have a great day, Alan. You too. Thanks for listening to another episode of Star Wars 7x7. And hey, before you follow Obi-Wan on some idealistic crusade, check out SW7x7.com for show notes, links, photos, videos, and more. And if you like what you've been hearing, support the podcast at Patreon.com SW7x7. It's not a mind trick, it's Destiny Unleashed. is not endorsed or sponsored yet by Lucasfilm Limited, Disney, or 20th Century Fox. It is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. Star Wars, the Star Wars logo, all names and pictures of Star Wars characters, vehicles, and any other Star Wars related items are registered trademarks and or copyrights of Lucasfilm Limited or their respective trademark and copyright holders may the force be with them. All original content is copyright 2017 Star Wars 7x7. We hope you love it.